Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. Big challenges in life. So to sort of tell you the background info first, on my laptop, I don't, I don't use that often, but whenever I use my laptop, I log in with my right index finger to, to authenticate with Windows Hello for Business. I don't type my password any longer. I don't use the pin. I, I just use my, my right index finger. I mean, I start working on something. It works very well, and it's, it's faster on my Windows 11 than if I use my thumb on my Android phone, because obviously with a phone, you want to use a different finger because it's, it's more logical. So last night I had a friend over for dinner and, and we debated on, on what to have for dinner. So, so we opted for steaks and, and I don't do steaks that often, but when I do, it really needs to be really good. So it needs to be the, the filet mignon kind. So we went with three hours in the water bath, you know, the, uh, the sous vide. Yes, mm -hmm. for, for me, it's sous vide, but I, I think it's pronounced <laughs> sous vide. And um, it, it, was, it was in the, in the water bath for three hours. It was just the right temperature. And while I was cutting the vegetables, I cut my right index finger because I have one of those fancy, super sharp Japanese kitchen knives and, 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 and it easily cuts the finger. So my right index finger, I cannot use that for Windows Hello for Business any longer, at least for the next four weeks, I think. I now have to type in a PIN number. So, so that's, that's the obstacle in life I, I now have. <laughs> life is tough. So <laughs> apart from uh, the challenges of having something called uh, sous vide, uh, <laughs> sous vide is super cool. I've used it a lot as well in my cooking. Um, I have a solution to your problem. Add another finger to Windows Hello. You can do that. Uh, so I, I have actually three of my fingers registered so I can sign in with three different fingers because I had exactly this problem. I didn't cut <laughs> myself, but I burnt myself on something and uh, neither my Android device, um, because the, the Android device I had at the time used my index finger on the back of the phone to identify. And I used the same on the computer. And because I, I got a burn, it couldn't recognize the finger anymore. So I, I went through exactly that. Um, so do register another finger or just your face with the Windows Hello thing, and, and then you're still good, so you don't have to type the pin. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that some of us can think outside the box, because I didn't even consider using another finger. It's always been the index <laughs> finger. It cannot be anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been this way. I don't want to change. <laughs> All righty, so what is up uh, with you? So on my side, I mean, April and the early days of May have been really great with the weather. So I've set up a small workstation area outside to soak a bit in the sun, but at the same time, get some of my tasks done. So, the, you know, things I work on these days is I don't spend my time working as a developer like I used to do in the past. I was hacking, hacking, hacking on things and building things, but now it's security reviews, compliance documents, it's documentation, um, architecture diagrams, things like that. And I find that 
a lot of these things, sometimes you bump into an issue or like when I sit in my main office or my home office, which is my main office, I can get stuck in a, a pattern or a train of thought that I can't get out of unless I actually get up and, and walk, walk away. Because when I enter the home office, I see the same things. And then my brain immediately jumps into the same place where I try to solve the problem, which means I'm thinking in the same, uh, same path. So I set up this workstation station area outside now in the very small garden that we have. And I realized every time I change location, whether it's from my home office to a coffee shop or from now indoors to the garden, or if I go sit at the kitchen table or whatever, I always get a fresh view on what I'm working on. So I, I do this quite a lot and I've done it for years, but now I could do it with the garden because if, if you follow the show, you know that we got a new house last year and this is the first time we can enjoy the spring in the garden. It's kind of nice. So setting up a workstation area outside was, was really nice. So that's what I've been doing. Uh, but obviously now I have my, one of my everyday problems. Like if you cut your finger and you cannot work around that with the other nine fingers that I hope you have in your, on your hand, hands, <laughs> Um, I, I have a problem that I get a glare in the monitor, of course. So I have to build like a cardboard box around my, my laptop screen. So every time I, I walk out into the garden now to, to get some work done, it looks like I'm carrying a luggage because this cardboard thing sitting on top of the laptop is pretty huge. But I do get to, to see everything clearly on the screen. So it's definitely worth it. Good stuff. Uh, so today, this is episode 133 performance efficiency in the Azure Well-Architected Framework. And before we get started on this one, we use OneNote for the notes for, for all of the episodes. And, and we both fill this out. And then during the recording, we have the OneNote open on the side. I'm looking at the OneNote. And you know, in OneNote, you have the title of the, of, of, of the page. And then you have the metadata, when the page was created, meaning when did we start planning for this episode? And this was created in January 18, 2022. So about five months ago. And finally, we are here. So this is about WAF, not Web Application Firewall, but Azure Well Architect Framework. What's, what do we need to know about WAF just in case somebody did not listen to episode 121 on cost optimization in WAF? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean... We, we did talk about WAF a little bit in the past, and we will have a few future episodes planned as well for talking about areas in here. Um, it's like a set of best practices and guidelines for architecting your things in the cloud, in this case, the Azure cloud, um, in a well-designed manner. So the, the well-architected framework per, per the name um, tells us that. And then it consists of what we usually call pillars, and that's reliability, security, cost optimization, which we talked about, operational excellence, and then today we're talking about performance efficiency. So these are kind of different areas that you can focus on to optimize and ensure that your workloads are behaving in, in a correct way. And, and also that you kind of follow the practices set forth um, by Microsoft and, and the community and, and you know the standards and follow the standards. Um, so we use this quite a lot um, in different areas of that. Often when I talk to customers, they have cost optimization and security as the top two focus areas. Um, but I, I am seeing a lot of customers now adopting this uh, in the wild, which is kind of cool. So I, I'm really excited to see that. Um, so I think maybe we can do a, a general episode on WAF as well. 
at some point. Today, we have a lot to cover on performance efficiency um, speci specifically. Um, so I think we'll we'll take a deep dive on that today. Um, and kind of performance efficiency, if we just go back to what that is before we dive into that. And if you think about the workloads you have and the demand kind of increases for those, your system needs to scale efficiently. Uh, so you need to anticipate increases in the cloud environment usage and you need to kind of meet the business requirements. And to do that, there's a couple of key principles. Um, and of course, some areas will scratch on the surface of in this episode. And, and a few of those principles are understanding the challenges of distributed architectures. A lot of the things we design today is microservice architecture. So everything is distributed across the globe in different regions. And then we need to understand what the challenges and benefits of that is. And how do we make sure that this is efficient, performant? How do we monitor things? All of those things. Uh, running performance testing in scope of development and your QA and production environments. Continuously monitoring the applications that you have. Uh, identifying improvement opportunities and you know do resolution planning. Not just identify stuff, but also how do you then roll fixes out and how do you make sure this doesn't happen in the future? And of course, investing in capacity planning. We did talk about capacity reservations a little bit in a few episodes ago, um, which can also tie into that a little bit. So if you do work on uh, using Azure reservations or, or some kind of capacity reservation, then that is also important to factor in when you talk about these things. So that, that I would say is the, like the overall overarching uh, goal of the performance efficiency. And as we talk about this um, today, then we will dive into some of the areas and that we can focus on. So I, I probably have a lot to say on this because I work with this in production, with production workloads and uh, with our team. So we do spend a lot of time on things here. We don't utilize everything that comes out from the practices and best practices and docs, but we spend a lot of time understanding it and trying to figure out how we can optimize and make sure that whatever we put into the cloud is actually designed and architected in such a way that it's future-proof and it does follow the best practices and that we get like the upper hand of whatever we deploy into the cloud. I can I can really buy into this topic definitely. Uh, for me, the the performance efficiency is definitely one of those areas that I I spend the least amount of time in, and that's probably because a lot of the times I work with customers, it's about security. How much is this going to cost? How do we deploy this? How do we monitor this? But the performance often seems like an afterthought in the sense that, well, it's been up and running for a year. Now we need to think about scaling. And now we need to think about performance testing. And, and then it's, it's a bit too late to go back to the development phase to figure out, well, should we test something? And this is not to say that, that customers do not test, but it's, it's, a, it's a minor thing often in the in the big picture it's more about deadlines and overall cost and security and deployment challenges and do we have the resources to actually run this thing so should we dive deep into now on the performance efficiency so so there's there's a couple of sort of main areas uh so which one do you want to start with first and, and, and which which are the main areas so the different areas of this pillar is design, test, and monitoring. Those are like the three kind of things that you look at when you when you look at the WAF framework. And I just want to mention also that, I think we mentioned this in a previous episode when we talked about the WAF framework as well, 
Uh, it's not unique to Azure. There's also the AWS well-architected framework, and I think Google has one now as well. I'm not sure. So there are other WAF frameworks available that you can also take a look at, and you will also recognize some of the pillars might be the same, and some of the content in there and the recommendations might be similar. Um, so it's worth the time investing to understand these things, because if you then work multi-cloud, you will then have a um, upper hand in understanding how you can design things for the for the other cloud. Um, as for this pillar, the performance efficiency, design, test, and monitoring are uh, like these three main areas that you that you uh, mentioned. And I would say let's start with design because usually this is how it goes: you you design something, then you hopefully test it, and then you monitor it when it's in production because you cannot start with monitoring if you haven't designed it and shipped it. So. Um, Looking at design and application design, um, this is all about um, designing your workloads for scale. Like you add a web app and then the, the demand for that web app increases, then you have to scale. And then how do you scale it? Uh, so there's a lot of guidance around these things and a lot of things. So we're not going to talk specifically about each guidance for each of these things, because then we would need probably a full week uh, 40 hours to talk about that because there is a lot of data and information to digest. So instead, I, I would say that uh, we take the the overview, the high level, and, and pick out the, the main points that we want to talk about that are important and, and also to kind of paint the picture of why this might be worth investing a few hours to understand and look into and why weaving this into your daily routines and processes with your teams is actually benefit. So with application design, you have design for scalings. You can handle dynamic workloads, scale on demand, or on schedule. For example, with schedule, this something comes up a lot. If you're a public website and you, you have a basket or like a shopping cart or something, and maybe you have this Black Friday exclusive that will happen close to Halloween or uh, close to um, Thanksgiving or you know whatever kind of event that you anticipate people to come onto your website, then... This is kind of a, a planned scaling. Then you have the on-demand scaling. When, when you see that there's a spike or a surge in users coming to your web app or to your API or whatever you have, then you can scale it. But it's not just about scaling instances. You have something called scale as a unit. So don't just add another two web instances or a few more containers. Instead, also consider upscaling storage, queues, etc. Everything as a unit, because then you can better avoid bottlenecks. And again, this is this one thing could be an entire episode that we talk about the bottlenecks that we've experienced throughout the years. And we see this a lot in, in my current role. Uh, whenever we scale a web app or we add more containers to a workload, if we don't scale queues and how we do things on the back end, we don't scale storage, or if we don't partition things better, we, we will have a bottleneck. You can add 100 more instances, but if everything pings the same queues or the same storage or you know, if, if you still have another dependent service that's the bottleneck, then you need to think about how to scale that or how to kind of distribute the workload on the dependent services as well. So that's what, when we say scale as a unit, that's kind of what I think. Um, you also need to take advantage of like auto scaling features of the platform. And I think this is by experience, I would say first look at what the Azure auto scale has to offer and try to make use of the built-in auto scaling mechanisms for using third-party or your custom-built mechanics. Uh, I've done that. Uh, I've built my custom mechanics for scaling. And while it works, relying on the built-in mechanisms usually is better because things change and update a lot in the cloud. 
And on the on the infra side, uh, if you use platform as a service or infrastructure as a service, whatever you use, things will happen and change and upgrade and update on the cloud side. And if you don't stay on par with that, then it might end up that your auto scaling solution does not work, uh, which is what happened to me. So we try to rely on the built-in things. And, and I think that's also one of the areas of the design phase or the, the design areas here is try to make use of whatever you have out of the box before you start building your own stuff. Um, another thing to think about is like partitioning the workload. So like more modern take on this is design a microservice architecture. So, you know, avoid the monolith and design the system in like decomposable processes. So the rules and guidelines for proper microservice architectures, they're plenty and thorough. So we're not going to spend time talking about what a good microservice architecture is in this episode. But again, uh, another episode could be spent fully on that because again, we have a lot to, to talk about there. Um, so these things are, are important. And this is what we call like in the design phase or the design era, this is application design. And also like moving things to the background um, often you see a web app running and a user clicks a button and something needs to happen, like a long running operation, processes that take longer than a user can, uh, can or should have to wait in the UI. Um, you know, depending on the hosting platform, there's many options for background tasks. We can use Azure functions, web jobs, worker roles, and a lot more. So don't forget to distribute the background tasks as well, if there's many of them. Scaling out the background processes can also be important. Because like we said, if you throw another 100 instances at something and you upscale um, the front end, if you don't upscale everything else, then you will still have bottlenecks. And the same applies with background tasks. Because I see this a lot that companies create app services and then function apps. And the functions will deal with background tasks. So a user does something in the UI, a message is added to a queue, the function does something, then returns a notification back to the web app, maybe 10 seconds later, maybe five seconds. But if you have a heavy user load and you scale up your web app, so now you have 10 instances of the web app, but only one instance of the function app, then you will have a lot more requests than maybe you can handle in that short time period. So always think about that. Scale as a unit, um, upscale, and also if you move things to the background, which you should consider doing um, quite a lot, then make sure the background also scales. So your background tasks. Yeah. For for this, I I have a quick story and then I have a question for you. Yesterday, I was attending an in-person event. Uh, we we had a panel discussion with the local Azure community on 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 Azure security, and and there was a resource that somebody mentioned that yeah, there's a useful community here as well. Please join, and the address was something like bits.ly/something. So I casually opened that on the way home. And it, it started to open a website, but it timed out. And I figured, well, okay, perhaps the community does not exist anymore. But then I hit refresh and the website spun up. And then I realized it's, it's running on the free tier on, on, on Azure App Service. It took a bit of time to actually spin up. And I figured, well, this is one way of doing performance efficiency. It's super cheap, it works, <laughs> but not always. So, so for you, Toby, if you're planning or designing an, an, an application and, and, and you're focusing on the performance efficiency in the application design phase now, do you upfront plan for all of these that you, you, you mentioned? Or is it more of, uh, well, let's choose sort of the architecture. Is it microservices? Is it monolith? Is it something else? 
And then let's add on these scalability and performance capabilities later on. Or do you sort of upfront spend a lot of time designing these just in case you would need those in the future? Yeah, I think this is a great question, actually. And, and again, something that we can spend a, a full episode on. I think this is, um, uh, the, the question is fair, but I also think the only answer I can give here is it depends, right? If the project is a proof of concept for a billing application or a billing API that is supposed to handle, you know, five different types of incoming requests, well, you don't need all of this. If it's a proof of concept, you just build it and then you make sure it works. I would say for, for anything you build, try to keep these things in mind, right? This is not a, a blueprint saying this is the only way you can do things. These are best practices and things that for production workloads, for things that scale, for like really designing great solutions in the cloud, you need to understand these things. It doesn't mean that you have to tick all the boxes. You don't have to do all these things and especially not when you start the project. Um, so it's, it's a discussion I've ended up in a couple of times and like when you design cloud native applications and cloud native solutions that are built to the cloud for the cloud and you have these things in mind, it will be super easy relative terms, super easy to kind of connect the dots later. But if you just start building without thinking about it, that might be a bit trickier. So for example, I do try to think, will this uh, grow into something that is better as a microservice architecture, or is it just a web app with a um, web job connected to it, or does it require something else? Um, because if it's a microservice architecture, it might involve container instances or Kubernetes or functions in different regions. And like the how you design things might differ a little bit and also how you then develop things. Uh, but no, you don't have to make the, the decision upfront, but you should have this in the back of your mind, especially if you're the architect, if you're responsible for the designing and, and building these cloud solutions, understand and keep these things in mind when you discuss the proof of concept in this case, or if it's a new project, try to understand the requirements today, but also what's the requirements in the future. Where is this going to be? Who's going to operate it? How it's going to be operated? What is the intended user load? Is it internal users? Is it a public facing website? All of these things, they will put different requirements uh, on you as the architect in that case to, uh, to tie some of these things in from day one versus kind of connecting them later on. But like we know with everything in IT, you can start small and then you can kind of scale up also on your um, like connected services and how you do things. Um, but certain things are super important to consider. Like again, with application design to round that off, uh, when we talk about um, designing the app, also consider throttling, right? And there's really two types of throttling here that I'm thinking of that I also experienced a lot. One is incoming request to your app. You built an app or you built an API and you have incoming requests to that. So heavy load on your services. That may mean heavy load in the dependent services as well. If every time someone makes a request to your app, you have to make a request to something else, then of course it puts additional effort and, and, um, and load on that service. So you can implement throttling on your end towards your visitors. And you're also being throttled by services by Microsoft. So implement, implementing throttling in your API, like if you use API management, you can have this built in and you can define that each user or a, each API user will get this amount of requests, like 200 requests per minute uh, as a base, basic example. And instead of then allowing unlimited traffic, you can, for example, limit a customer or API key 
um, up to those 200 requests per minute. And that means you don't break SLAs when you get hammered, right? Because your app will automatically say, okay, now you're sending too many requests. Now you have to back off. Send a 429 status code. That's the throttling. And say, you have to back off and then try again later. So that's important to think about if this is something that consumers will use. So someone will consume your API or someone will connect to your web app. That could be interesting to, to think about. But the other type of throttling is when you hammer services. So you hammer um, databases, you hammer dependent services, you send a lot of data or a lot of requests to something. And, and for like the bigger picture here, um, on a 30-day rolling period, I send between four and nine billion requests to some of the Astro services because we do a lot of things and process a lot of data. We, of course, get um, throttled a lot depending on where we are, what time of the day it is, how we are attacking the service. So whenever we get a 429 back, we take a look. Okay, they asked us to wait for 30 seconds. Then let's back off and then we try again. So this, of course, increases the complexity if you have a microservice architecture and maybe you have 100 different workers attacking something or collecting data from something. Then you need to get them all to communicate and understand that we just got a 429. Now we need to all back off. Otherwise, we'll keep getting, getting throttled. So there's a lot of these things to, to think about. So I think my answer was perhaps longer uh, than your question. Do you need to think about these things and do all these uh, at the start of the project? No, you don't. Um, that's the short answer. The long answer is what I just said. Um, I'm, I'm relieved now on, on, on that one. So there's a lot to cover here, and I do have another question, but I will save that for later. So after application design, uh, we have data management. And, and I sort of felt that, that, that data management and thinking where to store data and everything else, that that would actually go someplace else than performance efficiency. I'm sort of thinking reliability or security, but perhaps it, 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 it really belongs in here. Uh, you mentioned partitioning the workload. So that's obviously the, the microservice architecture monoliths and everything else. But, but what about for data management? Uh, is it as simple as choosing between Azure SQL and Cosmos DB and calling it a day? Or is there something else <laughs> I need to think about? Back to basics. Um... No, it's not that simple. And, and you're right, um, data management and, and data does not exclusively fit into the performance efficiency pillar. Uh, like a lot of these things, there's a lot of angles to each thing in each of the pillars. And here, we're talking specifically how to make the data more performant, right? So if you're standing now starting a new project and the only question you have is, where do we put the data? We don't care about performance. We don't care about security, no nothing. We just care about persisting the data somewhere. Well, then you can make choice based on what skill set you have or where you expect it to be in the future, things like that. Um, but to make the data more performant in your solutions, there's a lot of things to think about. So one is data partitioning, like you mentioned. And, and this is like spreading the data across services and databases. Um, so unless the service has the capability built in, then you have to do that yourself. So again, something we need to think about when we architect uh, solutions. Why do we want to spread data across services and databases? Well, again, it's to have a load, right? If you partition the data and you spread it out horizontally or vertically, then you will have a better chance of making performant queries. Take table storage. If you use the same partition key for everything and you have hundreds of millions of items, it's going to be ridiculously slow. 
But if you do have hundreds of millions of items like we do, but you have um, a good uh, partition key, key setup, then that in combination with how you query the data will give you a lot better performance. So this is super important to think about regardless of what data base or data service you choose, think about how you can maximize the performance uh, for easier scaling and partitioning the data is part of that. So you can of course partition horizontally, vertically or functionally uh, or a combination of them. Um, eventual consistency is something if you work with Cosmos DB, then you might uh, have heard this a couple of times. So it kind of reduces the time needed to sync data across multiple stores. So if you have a multi-geo setup and you have the same data across multiple regions, then it can take time to sync the same data across all these regions with eventual consistency. It's perfect when you read a lot of data frequently, but you don't write as often because then, then the data will sync, uh, if you will, eventually, but it doesn't have to be the, the super real time data. It can be near real time and that's good enough which means a lot better performance. Um, we also should think about reducing what we call like chatty interactions between components and services. And like multiple calls uh, to dependent services should be avoided as much as we can. Fewer requests, optimally a single request if possible would be great to execute to get all the data that we need as opposed to an app that heavily sends messages back and forth uh, when that's not necessary. So I'm looking at you here, SignalR. Um, SignalR is great, and we've used it a lot to communicate back and forth between the client and server. Um, and it does actually scale really well with the SignalR service. However, um, not just for SignalR, but for like chatting interactions in general, every time you make a request to a page, if you're a visitor, and this page then has to make five queries to different data storages or databases and two API calls for every time you load something. Now that's one user. Imagine you have 10 users. Well then you have a lot more, like 70 times more uh, things to do if you make seven requests on, on every user. Then all of a sudden from one user to seven users uh, or to 10 users, then you make 70 requests instead of seven. If you go to hundred users, then you make 700 requests. Doesn't make sense. So things will scale poorly if you have not considered uh, how you kind of deal with requests. And again, I have many real world examples here. By experience, we had a, a system that made a lot of data requests because you kind of loaded a dashboard. On the dashboard, you saw a lot of different data. And that data was fetched from different data storages. So uh, we used something called like polyglot persistent. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so we use multiple different types of data stores to serve the solution purpose. And um, what happened here is we had to make calls, like 20 calls every time we loaded the page. Now imagine you have five users, maybe that's okay. If you have 50 users, it's starting to become a problem. If you have any more than that, dependent services will start saying no because you're making too many requests. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of things to think about. And I have a really long checklist here that I wanna talk about, but I realize we will not have time to go through them. Um, something that comes to mind here uh, which has been a problem a lot in a lot of solutions I've taken a look at, people don't cache aggressively enough. So you need to have cache control, client-side caching, server-side caching, you know, cache all the things. So this reduces the load in the services because you don't have to make a round trip to the server if you already have it in memory or in like an Azure cache for Redis. Uh, it's a perfect solution for data that kind of requires additional processing or heavy queries to produce. 
So if you go to a page and this page has to make five queries, maybe multiple joins in a SQL server, or if it's getting complex data from, from table storage, this might take a lot of time. Maybe take 10 seconds to execute the query, maybe more. Then if you do that once, it's better to catch the results unless you need it real time. So if it's not real-time sensitive, caching is a superb solution here. And I've used Azure Cache for Redis quite a lot, and it's awesome. And there's multiple ways to do distributed caching, of course, with SQL Server, with different types of data storages. You can do in-memory caching. I use the distributed storage appro approach a lot with Azure Cache for Redis because it's persisted. So even if the web app goes down and it comes back up, all the cache is already there. You don't have it in memory. It doesn't go away. So that's really cool. Um, and then another type of data management point uh, that's also important just to round that off is now we talk a little bit about how you handle and design the data, but also when you, when you have VMs, if you have VMs running your workloads, sometimes you don't use platform as a service or pass solutions. Maybe you need uh, IAS or maybe you need a VM to operate something on a the server, then you have to choose between the different types of storage here as well, like local SSD storage, standard storage, hard drives, or premium storage SSDs. And the different tiers support different types of disks. So for example, premium storage only works with a certain VM type. So these are things that is important to think about. But again, coming back to your question, do I need to know about all these things from day one? No, you don't. But it's really good to understand these things and have it in the back of our minds because when we do scale up at some point, when we do need to improve the performance of our solutions, then we need to understand those things. Um, so like I, I mentioned, polyglot persistence, which is supporting multiple types of data storages uh, or data types for the purpose of your application. So for example, we use that. We have table storage, blob storage, and PostgreSQL storage. Um, all of that combined to serve a single solution purpose. Why? Well, each of them has their place, limits, and benefits. So tables have an extremely high capacity um, you know, for, for storing stuff, but uh, not as big objects can go into a table. So blobs can handle larger objects, and that makes it quicker for us to use for, for some things, um, but they're not as efficient as tables. And then PostgreSQL gives us the full flexibility and capabilities of a traditional RDBMS or relational database management system if we want that, or in our case, like dynamic hand handling of JSON objects, which makes life a lot easier for some of the data types we have. So again, think not about choosing the data store. Think about what data do I need to have and how can I best serve the purpose of the solution? And then you might end up with two or three services to host the data, and that's totally fine. This is called polyglot persistence, and this is something you can also find in the well-architected framework. And if you just Google polyglot persistence, you'll, you'll get a lot of resources talking about the benefits of that. So I'm, I'm super happy to, to be using that ourselves. Um, experience with that is really good. And we have been able to increase performance of a lot of things just by doing this because we can offload each service. We can really serve the data from where the data is supposed to be served as opposed to trying to fit all the data with a shoehorn into table storage or into a SQL server or into something else. Um, but again, there's a lot of considerations here and I have a lot of thoughts on this, but we will not have two weeks for a recording right now. Um, so I think I will kind of round off the data management uh, around there. Uh, one quick question before we, we move on. Uh, 
do you need to think between the different pillars in 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 a well architecture framework that if you're planning for data management if you're planning for for application design in general are you also at the same time sort of cross-referencing cost management and security or do you go through the pillars one by one very good question there is no such thing as going through the pillars one by one in my book maybe if you tune into to someone doing a presentation on it there might be a, an order or a cadence or like a priority list of what is most important to look at what i would recommend is in the waf um in the documentation so aka.ms slash waf if you go there each of the pillars has a section called trade-offs. That is crucial to understand because exactly what you mentioned now, do you do this pillar and then another pillar? Well, in my book, no, you don't. Um, you need to understand all of them if you want to design a truly great solution, uh, but you don't need to understand all of them right now. But for example, if you are going to choose the data uh, source, go into cost optimization, look for data. There might be ideas on how you can optimize storage and how can you optimize the cost um, for different types of storages. But there's also the security pillar. And the security will tell you, well, if you use this, this is how you should secure it. If you use that, then that's how you secure it. But again, coming back to the trade-offs, you cannot do 100% performance efficiency without increasing the cost because making things more performant might require you to have multiple services or to scale services out horizontally or scale them up. And if you do that, that's going to increase cost, which is counterintuitive to the cost optimization pillar. And whenever you optimize cost, that is counterintuitive to the security pillar, because anytime you introduce more security, more security layers, more security capabilities, you increase the cost, right? So there's always a trade-off. So this is a really good question. But again, coming back to our old consultant answer, it depends. There is no clear answer to this. It all depends on the requirements, on the applications or solutions you're building and the organization. Is that an internal app? Is it external? Can you protect it entirely with firewalls and just shut all outside access and just have a, like a private link going in? Or does it need to be accessible from the World Wide Web? And if so, how do you protect it? And what is then the most important priority to you? Is it to save a little bit on the cost or is it to really secure it so nobody can you know, do something bad with it? Uh, so this is super different depending on the solution as well. Um, so I'm afraid there is no short answer to the question. At least I don't have a short answer to it by my experience. Uh, but again, all of these things are not a yes or no or something we need to understand, um, you know, everything off in a specific order. But it is important to understand these things or have heard about them or have taken a look at them. So we know that these things do exist and the guidance for these things exists in the well-architected framework. And, and a lot of that just means we can go there, take a look, read upon it. And if we face a project and we know kind of what components we want to put into it or the requirements, take a look at the relevant sections in the WAF and across all the pillars, try to understand and, and build a picture of the requirements you then have to put on the project. So in, in a role as head of technical operations, my responsibility has always been to ensure that whatever we put into production, whatever we, we build, operates reliably. It should be secure. It should be cost-effective. It should be performant. I mean, it should be all of these five pillars, right? That's my job. But the thing is, you cannot do 100% of all of those. You have to always make a trade-off. Um, and I think being aware of those trade-offs is key to understanding how you can really design great solutions.
makes sense. I'm 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 fully fully into this now. And previously, I I sort of saw the different pillars as as individual pillars. But I'm I'm now starting to get that you need to build your own matrix for success to understand everything that goes into into planning and operating and designing this. Uh, should we move on from from design phase to testing? Yeah, uh, I just want to round off the the design phase with the also within like when you start the implementation. There's something in the WAF called uh, performance anti patterns. So that's documented in the well architected framework, and it contains things like um, uh, things you should not do or things you should avoid. And I think that's a a really great way to angle something. Because often you see, this is how you do this, but then nobody tells you what you should not do. Here, there's an explicit guidance saying, do not do this because this will be bad for your performance. Um, so also take a look at that. And then, of course, like batching requests and minimizing the required number of connections and avoid locking resources and using uh, asynchronous calls, things like that. Um, but check out the performance anti-patterns. We'll put a link, of course, in the show notes to that. Uh, and yes, we did talk a lot about design. So let's move on to test, which is the second area. Uh, and here's really two things we we talk about. And like this section will not be as long as the previous one. We have performance testing uh, because it's performance efficiency. We have different types of testing, of course, that we also do. But specifically for performance, we're talking about performance testing. And then, of course, the testing tools. What can we use to, to actually do that? So for performance testing, I really like to, to point out something that I also noticed existed in the well-architected framework, at least last time I read it. You know, shared team responsibility is something that can help here. Just like we, we talked in some of the episodes ago, I think about a software development lifecycle and secure software development lifecycle and DevSecOps, that SecOps and, and security is an organizational-wide responsibility and a shared responsibility that we all need to kind of adopt in order for that to succeed. And the th same thing goes into performance. If you build uh, or want to build a performance solution, not a single developer or QA engineer can achieve that. Uh, so performance tests need to be uh, using like dedicated environments or like a test bed. Um, it requires commitment from devs, architects, if you have DBAs, you know, whoever's going to operate it, like me in this case. Uh, so not a single individual or a single role can take care of this. We're all in this together. I think this is a mindset and something that we really need to get a buy-in from everyone. Because often in a project, someone, a stakeholder comes in and say, hey, this is not performant enough. You have to make it better. And then points to someone in the team, like the architect or the QA team or a developer. That's not really going to make things work. We all need to understand where performance is suffering, because then we can collectively use our brains to figure that out. Um, so that's something that we really adopted, like everyone, get everyone involved in a true DevOps atmosphere. Around performance testing, also think about capacity planning, and we're coming back to this a lot. So we talked about performance testing with Azure Load Testing Service, episode 115, I think. Uh, and that's pretty great for injecting loads on your services. You can test them out. So we can test different load and before specific events like holidays, sport events, anything that may impact your traffic, as well as random spikes that doesn't tie to any specific events. And this kind of helps us ensure that as we scale, number one, we can scale and we can put our design phase into practice and actually test it. So everything we just talked about, the anti-patterns, 
and but everything before that, how you design and how you do things, you have the microservice, you have distributed your storage, you have done this, you have done that. How do you know it actually works before you put it into production? That's performance testing. So we can use the Azure load testing service to do really good load testing. And I've used that a couple of times now. And it's it can be expensive. So think about that. That's a heads up. Look at the cost before you run it because it can come off quite expensive if you run things at scale. Uh, but it is super great because you can then see if the capacity in your system is working out uh, or if you have to scale. And if you have to scale, does it happen automatically? Is it autonomous or do you have to get involved? Um, so this is perfect to do before you actually ship to production. So you do load testing, stress testing, and test the fault tolerance of the system. And this kind of helps us identify if the application and dependent services behave and perform as we expect them during unexpected load. And uh, we can also determine the necessary requirements on the infrastructure when the load increases. Like again, if, if the load increases, then the infrastructure might need to scale up or scale out depending on your setup. Might also be a distributed microservice architecture. And then maybe you need to throw in a few more services in different regions or different areas, depending on where things happen. Um, so this is important to, to kind of do and, and figure out as soon as possible, because if you go into production and then realize, oh, we built it in such a way that we cannot scale beyond two instances because we get issues with memory or we get issues with caching or we get issues with something, well, then it's better to figure, figure that out first. Um, you should also do failover tests, right? Because talking about performance, it's a, about how quick can we make things and what is the perceived performance, but also how long does it take to reroute users to a paired region if something fails? So if you have paired regions, which perhaps is, again, another idea for an episode talking about Azure paired regions and what that is. So if you have a paired region, which is essentially a region that collaborates with the region you're currently in, um, to put it in, a, in layman terms, what happens if your main region goes down, right? Will all the users automatically be rerouted to the paired region? And if so, how long does that take? So you need to kind of plan and test the failovers so you can adequately kind of verify these processes in case of failures. Um, but of course, if you're not operating something that is sensitive or critical and it's okay that it goes down half a day, then it doesn't matter maybe. If you have something that people expect at all times to be online, then it might matter a bit more. And then, of course, identifying bottlenecks on the apps. Define your non-functional requirements, like the levels of performance that the app must meet, how fast must transactions return a response under any given load. And again, remember when we talked about Azure Load Testing Service in that episode, we could see that as we increase the load, the latency and response times from different Azure-related services started to decline because we put such a heavy load on the system. And how many simultaneous connections can the app handle? And when you reach the maximum, do you need to scale? Do you need to scale before that? What happens if you scale? Will it be enough to add more instances or do you actually need to scale horizontally in a different way? Do you need to scale storage? Do you need to scale your queues? Coming back to what I talked about before, scaling as a unit. Um, and in case of failures, you know, catastrophic failures and server downtime, how much downtime do you allow before the app must be back in operational? And here comes my compliance brain into the game again, saying, well, it depends on your SLAs, depends on the DPA or the data processing amendment and what kind of contracts you have with the customers and stuff like that, terms of services agreements. But of course, you never want to have downtime, but sometimes it's excess, uh, acceptable with downtime. This is an internal system, system for time reporting. It's okay for me if it's down for a bit. 
if it's an external system that 2 million users a month use, it's not okay with downtime, right? So it all depends. So all of these things like performance testing, of course, need to be done using different tools. You can't really do it manually. So Azure Load Testing Service, we talked about that in episode 115. Go back to that if you haven't listened to it. Uh, it also uses JMeter, which is a great way to build performance tests and then customize them. Um, so Azure Load Testing Services makes use of JMeter scripts as input. And then, you know, take the time and invest the time to research on those things because it does help. And understanding uh, JMeter, and, and, you know, I don't know much about it myself. I can play around with it. But then the QA engineers that we have, they really know it. And we can say, well, we need to test these things. They can build these scripts. I get the files, I plug it into Azure Load Testing Service, and then I turn it up. And I say, okay, now we're really going to test this with 100 users or 1,000 users. Then we'll see what happens. Selenium is a good way for automatic UI testing. And testing tools is also about the process. So your DevOps process can run performance and load testing as part of the scheduled pipelines. Then you have to decide, do you want to use automated or manual testing? We use both. I don't see a reason why you have to choose one or the other. And I think the tools here uh, is perhaps less important than the actual process. So if you figure out a, a great process for reliable testing, you should be good. However, the tools we uh, mentioned uh, just now, they are pretty good. Um, I've used them a lot. I can recommend them. And they've kind of helped us understand and improve the performance of workloads we're working with. I'm sure there's a lot of other different tools as well. But it, yeah, the key point here is not to iterate a bunch of tools, which nobody will remember, just that there are tools available, load testing, performance testing, being part of something that is directly tied to performance efficiency that we're talking about right now might be a good time investment. So if you haven't looked at JMeter and Azure Load Testing Service, now might be a good time to at least read up on it or listen to the episode 115 or just Google uh, to figure out more on that because they, they will greatly help you in figuring out the performance of your app and the dependent services. I now recall that in episode 67, we did also talk about end-to-end -end testing with Playwright. And, and I like how Azure Load Testing Services is, is, is now available and definitely with the, with the time with JMeter. And, and perhaps for me, Playwright is quite obvious to add on top of this, especially when you deploy something for testing and, and you want to do those automated tests or perhaps manual runs, but you want to automatically identify something out, out from those as well. There's a lot of things here, definitely in, in test and testing and, and performance testing. Uh, but we have one last bit, uh, which is monitoring. And, and, and you mentioned a couple of things previously for monitoring. And, and if I'm thinking monitoring outside WAF or outside anything else, for me, it's Azure Monitor, and it's also always Application Insights. Mm -hmm. Are these enough, or is, is there something we're missing here? <laughs> is it enough? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will come back to this forever. I will, I will put this on a, on a poster in my office, and I will point to it in every meeting I'm in. Um, so monitoring, it's like a key aspect to identify all the bottlenecks that we have or can have. So without proper monitoring, there is no learning, only failures, right? Or at least that's what I usually say. So you're right, Azure Monitor, like a single point for infra-level logs and monitoring the most Azure services that you have. Azure Monitor natively ties into most of the services. And so many of the things we operate, 
we can just connect the infrastructure and say, well, we use Azure Monitor or it's automatically already monitoring. And then we can use application insight exactly as you mentioned uh, to keep track of performance in our apps, uh, app insights. It's a, an APM or application performance management solution. And you can just add this small instrumentation package to the app and voila, telemetry, metrics, performance indicators, all the things light up. I also use log analytics a lot. Uh, so you can crunch the data, query, visualize, take action. So like the cross-resource queries is a really powerful thing here because if you have, like I do, multiple apps in different regions with different data storages and with different app insights, I can make uh, log analytics queries across different workspaces and pull all the data into a single query and then visualize it and see where things happen. Performance is better or worse in this region or that region. So even if the data is not in the same place, you can use these kind of cross-reference queries, which is really powerful. Uh, so when it does come to monitoring, yeah, Azure Monitor, Log Analytics, Application Insights. These are the three things I'm thinking about. There is a lot of more things you can do for monitoring, but I would I would say that these are the things uh, you should start looking at, whatever size of the solution. If you're building a proof of concept, super small, maybe an Azure function as an API or maybe a web app or a console app running in a container, doesn't matter. Make sure you connect App Insight. Make sure you ship logs to log analytics if required. And make sure you connect Azure Monitor and set up alerts. Um, so there, there's a bunch of considerations, of course, here. Like, how are you monitoring to ensure the workload is scaling up properly, um, appropriately? Because we talk about performance efficient, efficiency. So when you scale, how do you know that the workload is scaling properly? How do you know that the auto scaling works? Are you monitoring that? If not, you should. So telemetry for end-to-end -end transactions, uh, they, they should be monitored. You should see the metric for CPU, memory, bandwidth, storage, all of these things. And you should also set alerts for limits, like when the CPU is on average above 80%, then send a, a warning or a high alert or a critical, depending on the level. You should use logs from the resources and the platform to learn about events that happen and when they happen. Also, who initiated it? Like a container was deleted or a scale event happened. We just scaled out. Here's why. Uh, so you don't just go and take a look and then realize, oh, we now have five instances instead of two instances of the web app. Why? Well, you can always use the logs for that. Uh, so you do get the insights from monitoring and then you can optimize your solution and, and whatever code you have. So when you understand how it behaves, when you understand the performance, when you understand the impact and the exceptions and whatever, then you can start optimizing. So of course, there's a lot more we can talk about on monitoring alone. I spent a lot of my days in Azure Monitor, Log Analytics, and App Insights. But again, I think that maybe deserves a full episode on its own because we don't have time to really dive into all the ideas and thoughts we have around that. So I think I think that's it for monitoring from my side. Do you have any other things on monitoring from your side? One of the challenges that I'm seeing with monitoring is that for IT pros, Azure Monitor obviously is a tool and, and they're familiar with that one and they're happy to gather the logs and, and do all sorts of nice things in there. But for application insights, the, the challenge that I often see with, with projects is that, that you have a third-party company implementing whatever on, on top of web apps or virtual machines or something else. But then you have the customer operating the whole Azure landscape. And the customer might be asking, yeah, it would be nice to get some telemetry within the application, not just telemetry from the VM or, or the web app hosting the solution. Could you perhaps implement the App Insights hooks and, and whistles and bells 
within the application. So when you're doing authentications and this type of telemetry, so that we could later debug those. And and it's it's almost a rule now that the third party will say, yeah, no, we don't have skills or interest for this. It's not in the scope. And then I feel, well, yeah, we could embed something uh, on the JavaScript side on the web app, but we still are not getting enough from the backend. So I, I, I feel here's a challenge definitely for monitoring. Everything we get on the infra side is fairly easy. Everything we want to get from within a custom application seems to be fairly challenging. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. An idea from my end here is as well. We do audit logs exactly for this. An administrator deleted something, or a user was upgraded, or someone changed the roles of something. Whatever happens in your custom application, send audit logs. Usually, I send them to Log Analytics um, because then, yeah, it's quick. You can really make queries easily. You can also send them through App Insights if you want them there. But yeah, this is a good point. Um, try to embrace that. Try to do it as early as possible. And if you come into a project where it's not done, might be worth explaining the benefits of audit logging of the application because exactly like you say, when you then have to come in and troubleshoot a bit later, you can also follow the stream of events and where they, those events may have ended because then that might indicate where the problem started. Uh, or if those events say, well, this thing doesn't exist anymore because the user was deleted by this service or by this user, because that's also something we, we experienced in the past. Someone comes and say, well, my user account doesn't exist. And then we can come back to the audit log and say, well, you deleted it two days ago. Here's the proof. Um, so there's, of course, multiple angles to that. But yeah, um, good point. I'm not going to talk more about monitoring. I, I realize this episode is running away from us in terms of uh, the time we have available. Uh, I do feel we have had a chance to go through a lot of the key aspects on performance efficiency. I'm really happy about that. Do we have anything else for this episode? Oh, the last thing, the unexpected question. And, and oh, Toby, yeah. I know you've been sharing a lot of info here, but you still need to share one last bit, the question to myself. Okay, so kind of caught me off guard. Um, I do have a good question that came up from a, a discussion I recently had. So you know how you go to a party and you meet new people and you introduce yourself, you know, hi, I'm Tobias. And then someone might ask you, how's it going? Or what do you do? Like these super mundane questions where people usually don't listen to the answer. Like, hey man, how's it going? Or what's up? And then people just move on, right? So what are some fun ways to answer everyday questions like, how's it going? Or what do you do? Good question. As of today, my, my answer obviously would be, well, I'm thinking, how do you pronounce <laughs> <It depends>. <laughs> That's That's the easy one. But this is always a problem if, if I visit the US especially. I think this is an American thing. They will, they will ask, how's it going? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm quite fine, but my left hamstring is, is, is a bit tight. So I'm thinking of stretching it tonight. And they go like, too much information. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I did not want to learn this. I just said and, hello. <laughs> yeah. And, don't need and, to talk then, to and then in school, what they actually teach you is that if somebody asks you, how's it going? you have to ask back the same thing. I'm like, what's the point in that? Because I sort of get like a, like a TCP packet in with the question. I, I need to give the, the, the ACK package back to confirm that I've received yeah. the question. I'm processing that. And it doesn't How you happen. do it. How you do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bye. And, <laughs> ex exactly. So, so my fun way probably is the Suzvide 
uh, how do you pronounce that and why is it called that? But beyond that, I just try to go with the flow and say, hey, all good. And that's that. <laughs> I can see this in front of me now. Yeah. You have a gathering and, and you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm Yussi. I usually cook with sous vide. How's your day? <laughs> <laughs> and they go like, yeah, that guy is awkward. Let's not talk yep, to him. Yep, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So thank you for joining for this massive episode on performance efficiency in the Azure Bell Architecture Framework. We hope you join us next week. And I promise we have more French pronunciation things coming up. Thanks. <laughs> All right. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.